Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Friends, welcome. Easter is absolutely my favorite Sunday of the year, and and this year just feels different because we're not together, and I miss seeing everyone coming in in their Easter clothes. I miss the smiles and just the joy. I miss hearing the singing of voices celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It just feels like a, a loss not to be together, and yet there's another reason why it's even harder, which is this: there's sorrow in our world. There's grieving that's taking place right now. You cannot read the death totals. You can't read about the number of sick people in our world without just grieving and feeling feeling a loss that takes place in our common humanity. As I've talked to people this week, I've thought and just had prayer requests from friends in Ecuador and in South Africa and India. I'm just trying to think of other places, but I've got friends that close to home who have begun to lose parents and this thing is just crouching in upon us and so we grieve, but I want you to know we don't grieve as those who are without hope. As Christians, there is hope. There's a hope that Easter comes to announce to us that there is a resurrection and there is a future and there is a, a hope for all who would put themselves under the kingship of Jesus. And so as we come today, I'm hopeful for a couple reasons. And one of those is uh, some of you may not have come to our worship gathering, but here you are and you're watching our Easter service online. And I want you to know you're welcome. Uh, we've been praying for you. We're are confident that God's got something for you today. And we're just gonna trust that the Lord's gonna do something good in your life. And I'm also hopeful for another reason. I, I really believe this is a historic moment in human history. That today of all days, churches all around the globe can't gather in person, but in home after home after home, on little screens and big screens, people are watching the truth of the gospel be proclaimed and they're celebrating and announcing and singing about the resurrection of Jesus, and that's a good thing. And so, and as I just think about where we are, I just am hopeful that in city homes and rural homes and wealthy homes and in poor homes and nursing homes and in foster homes and country homes and in, uh, in high-rise urban, urban central homes, that, that Christ is gonna be proclaimed, that, that he's gonna be exalted. And so let me pray for us as we begin our service this morning. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. Might he be known in each home around this globe. Father, that around every time zone on this planet, Father, might he be lifted up and exalted in every nation, in every tongue, and Father, in, 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 in every kind of individual, might he be lifted up and exalted as the risen Savior. Father, we trust that even though we are separated, that you, Lord, are by our side and that you, will, that you will do good work even in us. And so we just ask that you would work in each heart, in each home today for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
Friends, it's good to worship this Easter. And if you would, we are gonna get into the word now. If you would open your Bibles or turn in your device to Psalm chapter two, we are gonna continue our study of the life of David. And we're gonna jump a little bit ahead in the story of David to when David becomes king officially and kind of look at his coronation. But then we're gonna jump way ahead in the story and we're gonna look at when Jesus becomes king. So it's kind of one small step for David, one giant leap for mankind uh, because Christ becoming king has implications for all of us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We want us to connect the dots between David the king, Jesus the king, and how that affects and impacts your life and my life. And so we're going to jump into this in Psalm chapter 2 today. In the movie Princess Bride, there's a classic line, and uh, one character keeps using a word, inconceivable, and uses it in all kinds of different settings. And uh, finally, the Spaniard, Inigo Montoya, says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah, uh, this happens a lot in life and really in Christianity too. Churches oftentimes use these words and we pretend like we all know what they mean, but maybe we really don't. And so we're gonna look at one of those words today and that word is king. And uh, when we talk about king, uh, Jesus, in churches oftentimes we'll sing about King Jesus, we'll talk about Christ the king, we'll pray to the king, we'll have these conversations about what it, about Jesus as a king, but uh, many of us I think don't really understand the, the fullness of what that term implies as it's related to Jesus. And so what difference does it make for us and what does it, what does it really mean? That's what we're going to jump into here today. Now maybe you think of this term king and you think about it kind of like the Brits. And so uh, you're thinking about England and this kind of uh, monarchy that's been there, this connection to the past. And in good times, there's kind of pomp and importance that's placed on things. And in bad times, there's a comfort and someone to speak uh, to, the, to the nation but they're hardly ruling with an iron-like power and justice over all the nations. So uh, maybe that's what you think of King. Uh, maybe you think of Burger King, but that's kind of weird because Burger King's slogan is, you can have it your way, which makes it sound like you're more the king than they are. So that can be confusing. We talk about Mattress King and Smoothie King. Uh, sometimes we talk about uh, business leaders and industry leaders as the high-tech king or the healthcare king. Or I mean, We throw this term around in all kinds of ways. Uh, maybe you're thinking right now, especially about the Tiger King, and I want you to know Jesus is nothing like that guy. And uh, as we jump into this thing, it's important for us, I think, to wrestle with this idea of what does it mean that Jesus is our king? And how you answer that question, friends, will determine ultimately how you live. How you answer that question will determine how you deal with the stresses of life and how you deal with the successes of life. It's gonna deal, help determine how you, how you deal with the good times and the bad times and everything in between. And so how you relate to Jesus as king is an, is an important thing. And the reason I, why I wanna go here today and why I think it's so important is I wanna give you some biblical truth you can count on this Easter. And in the uncertain times in which we, we find ourselves and, and just the difficulty of, of the world and the COVID pandemic and everything that we're wrestling with and the fears and the anxieties and the stresses, I, we need something that goes beyond sentimental hope, something that goes beyond emotionalistic hype. We need something grounded and solid. We need a rock that we can count on, something that's unchanging, something that's sure, something uh, that gives us strength in these times. So uh, we're, let's lean in and look at Psalm 2 and let's see what we can learn about the kingship of Jesus and how it provides strength for us even in this day. Psalm 2 begins, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is, kindled, is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, psalm 2 is a, it's a fascinating psalm. It's known as a coronation psalm. And it's called that because it's, it has to do with the elevation of a king to a place of authority. It's when they are inaugurated or coronated and placed into uh, the, the time where they become the official ruler of the nation. And that's the, the setting of this psalm. But the theme of this psalm really is the sovereign Lord and the futility of fighting against him. Now here's the reality for you and me is we're often downcast. We're often depressed. We often are wrangling our hands and, 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 and raising our fists in frustration at the world. But what you see in the psalm is God is never like that. God, God is always the calmest one in the room. He's, he's filled with this eternal peacefulness and he's overruling the chaos and the clamor of all the earthly craziness. However loud the noise and interruptions are, God speaks quietly and confidently without, without angst or anxiety. It's as though as he talks to the nations that rage and these leaders uh, that, that are plotting all kinds of ideas, it's as though he says, while you are positioning and politicking, I put my own man on the throne. While you're spitting out views with every ickism and spasm of ideas that you could come up with, I was calmly executing my plans. While you were fighting for your place, I exalted my king above you and everyone else. And do you feel the difference in their tone? And one is, is just filled with this distress and the other is filled with this quiet confidence. There is a, there is a quiet uh, sovereignty of God that, that, that rolls throughout the universe and throughout human history. And you see that reigning over all the, over all the chaos. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, said uh, that that ought to be significant to us, that if the captain is confident of his victory, then the common soldier ought to be filled with hope. And that's what I want us to see today, that the thrust of the whole psalm says that any opposition to God is futile, that, that these guys that are fighting against the way of the Lord and the rule of the Lord are like snorting horses agitated before a race. I've got a confession. There's a thing I like to follow on Instagram called kook, kook slams. And kook slams are just these videos of people that put themselves in really, really bad places and get themselves in all kinds of trouble. And I, I get an inordinate amount of joy of seeing people get completely just smashed by a wave. And so there's oftentimes people that are standing at the edge of the ocean and a giant wave comes and just just shoves them all the way up the shore or they're, they're kind of arrogantly out on a, out on a promontory of a rock and they're 
posing for a picture, thinking that the water's receded, and all of a sudden, man, the water just overwhelms them, and they get knocked down. And I admit that I find a guilty pleasure in watching these videos, and that's sort of what you see in Psalm 2. It is God saying that you look a lot like that, that if you, if you stand up to the Lord and you try to fight against the Lord, it's like you trying to fight against a wave that's twice your size. It's not going to end well, and you're going to end up in, a, in an eternal kook slams video. I always love the way C.S. Lewis describes Aslan and Narnia. And this all gets to just the way we tend to think about the Lord and the way we tend to think about what his reign and his rule look like. But C.S. Lewis describes Aslan in his Narnia series, and Aslan's the kind of Christ-like figure that, that appears as a lion, and he describes him as safe but not good. In that famous passage, Mr. Beaver says, uh, someone says, well, is the lion safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the feel you get in Psalm 2. You get this kind of, man, there's this, this ruling king is, is good, but he's sure not safe. I sure can't put him in a box and package him the way I, I might like to. And so what we see is that the good but not safe God actually laughs at the opposition. And the only laughing matter, though, is the arrogance of those who try to bow up to the God who created them and the rest of the universe. You know, it's, it reminds me of, as I thought about this kind of laughing of them, of the kid that gets really angry at his father, and his father puts his arm out like this, and the kid's trying to throw punches, but can't get within, can't get within two feet. And so as the kid's just wailing away, trying to do this, the father's kind of laughing, going, man, do your worst, kid. Like, there's not a lot of pain you can do here, uh, because he's just so much bigger and stronger. And that's what the Lord looks at those who fight against him as. He looks down and he says, look, you can't touch me. I'm not afraid but you're going to wear yourself out trying to do so. And the suffering in the end, what you see is the suffering uh, is no, no laughing matter, that it will cost them something, and yet God's plan is going to march on without them. So he says, look, I put my king. And when he says I put, it's an emphatic I. He says, I placed my king where I wanted him, on my holy hill, and I have set him there. I've enthroned him there. I've installed him there. And so they can pout all they want, but God's going to do as he pleases. Derek Kidner, commentator, says that when the moment of the judgment comes, then it will be beyond any time of appeasing or arguing or excusing or postponing. Then it will be too late. But God is slow to anger, but eventually he will, um, he will cut them off. And so as you think about Psalm 2, it's God's reminder that God promised David and his heirs that they would rule over a kingdom that never ends. In verse 10 to 12, it closes with an invitation. It says to those who are fighting against the Lord, it says, be wise, be warned, meaning don't challenge God's sovereign rule. And he uses this interesting phrase. He says, kiss the sun. He's talking about paying homage to a king. He's talking about the moment where you would, you would kneel down and, and you would bestow um, honor to the king, acknowledging your surrender, your submission to his rule. And there's a phrase, this is rejoice with trembling. And have you ever been in the presence of someone that you viewed as just a supremely great human being? And you have that sense of, and I'm, I'm honored and, and I'm overjoyed to get to be in their presence, but almost a little terrified that I'm gonna mess it up. That's the feeling he says you ought to have when you come in, into the, the presence of God's anointed king. He says he will be a refuge for you, but he will only be a refuge as, as your king. He won't be a refuge for you if you will not yield to him. 
Now this psalm was used in the coronation of the kings of Israel, but there's a problem here. If you go back and you look at the earlier verses, it says that ask and he will give you all the nations to rule to the ends of the earth. Well, did that ever happen for the nation of Israel? No, it didn't. And the reason was because there was never a king in Israel who was strong enough, wise enough, good enough to fulfill all the promises that God had given in this, in this passage. And so this story feels incomplete. You read Psalm 2, and even though it was used in the coronation of the kings of Israel, it still feels like there's, there's, there's not a resolution. Uh, there's something missing or lacking in the story. So let's jump, let's jump forward a thousand years to the book of Acts. And if you're new to the Bible, I want to tell you the book of Acts is in the New Testament. It comes after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels tell you the story of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And each of the Gospels ends with this kind of a longer section where it tells you about everything that Jesus did in order to die for you, and then, and then about his, his resurrection. Acts picks up the story right after that. And so after Jesus' resurrection, as he's giving kind of final orders to his followers about what they're to do whenever he ascends and goes to be with his Father in heaven, Acts picks up the story there. And so that's where we're going to be for... And this next stretch, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, uh, we, we see this situation where Jesus' followers are in kind of a precarious position. They're being persecuted, they're suffering, and yet they feel, they feel strongly that they, and passionately, they need to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so as they do so, they're, they're experiencing this pushback from religious leaders and from others who are fighting against the Lord. And so in chapter 4, you actually have a, a story in which uh, they, they are, are, are experiencing that um, that same kind of pushback, and they've healed someone, and, and there's been a big uh, hubbub around that, and as they've taught, they've been ordered not to proclaim or speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And of course, they refuse because they have another master who's bigger than these leaders. And so we're going to pick the story up in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, and when they were released, this is talking about the leaders who they'd been brought in captive and, and investigated for this, for speaking the truth about Jesus in, in, that, in that world. And so they were held captive for a little while and then they were released. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. So here you see this kind of connection back to Psalm 2. And what we see is Jesus' Jesus' disciples, they, they connected the dots and said, what happened to Jesus is what was prophesied or predicted back in Psalm chapter 2. And so you have this kind of fulfillment of what was, what was predicted in Psalm 2 to take place. It connects the dots with the, the rulers. He says, those kings and rulers from Psalm 2, that was Herod and Pilate and the other religious leaders of Israel. And those were united together against the Lord Lord's promised king. 
But Jesus' disciples refused to back down because they answered to a higher authority. They had a king who, who, who was greater and who they really saw as their master. And so they lifted their voice together. I mean, I love what happens in the midst of uncertain times, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle. What was their first instinct? They were released and what did they do? They went to the Lord and prayed. They prayed and they, they started off and they prayed theologically and they said, oh, sovereign Lord. Meaning, Lord, you're, you're a sovereign ruler above all of these that are opposing us. All the ones that are, are fighting against the name of Jesus that are trying to tell us we can't speak the name of Jesus, you're a sovereign ruler above them. And so they, they think theologically. They said, look, you made the heavens and the earth, you made the sea, and you made everything in it. That if you created all this, then these creatures that are speaking against us surely can do us no harm. So they pray theologically. This kind of complete dependence upon, upon God. But you notice it's also a very calm prayer. That they've just kind of got this, God's got this mentality about them. They trusted his plan and they came around and said, look, even these guys that are working against us, that are, that are, that are attacking us, they work according to your predestined plan and your purposes. And that's a fascinating thing. What, what, they, what they recognize is Psalm 2 was written a thousand years before Jesus. But they look back and say, God, you've been at work in the creation of the world. You were at work in, in the time of David, putting a king on the throne of David and giving a promise that one of David's heirs would reign forever. And you're still sovereign over all things, working all things together for good in the time of Jesus. And he's the one that, you talked, that, that David talked about in Psalm 2. And so you just see this kind of unfolding of God's plan. And they're not saying that God is the author of evil when he says that even these men operated according to your plan, but they're saying that, that God can even use the, the suffering that's been brought their way for their good. Like Joseph in Genesis, he said, look, what you meant for evil to his brothers, God intended for good and brought about something good. And so these people have the same kind of confidence because they have a confidence in a sovereign Lord. And that's why ultimately they had hope. And so they, they, prayed, uh, they prayed theologically, but they also prayed hopefully. And so in verse nine, they, or 29, they prayed for boldness to continue to proclaim Christ, that God would strengthen them. They didn't pray merely for their protection. They didn't pray merely that their hard times would dissipate. They prayed that they would be bold for Jesus, that they would have passion to share the good news with others, that they would not back down, they would not shrink back, but that they would be borne up by the strength of God to proclaim claim the good news and begin a movement that would impact others in the world. And God answered their prayer. In fact, in that passage, he, he actually shook the building saying, hey, I heard you. And, and just let them know that he was gonna answer that prayer. And then we see that their prayer for boldness was answered and that they continued to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. So let's jump over to Acts 13. I wanna look at one other passage here that uh, details kind of this connection between Jesus and his resurrection with, the, with David in Psalm chapter two. And in Acts 13, uh, Paul's going to describe, Paul is preaching a sermon in Acts 13, and he's going to describe uh, really the, how Jesus' resurrection was his coronation and entrance into his Davidic role in king. He's going to show how, how it is that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 2, as well as other prophecies from the Old Testament. And through his resurrection, Jesus is going to be announced or declared to be king overall. But this is no ordinary king. This is a king who forgives sin. It's 
a king who secures our place with God. It's a king who vanquishes all of God's enemies. It's a king who eradicates evil. A king who spreads salvation throughout the earth and, and establishes a peaceful rule that will never end. And so King Jesus is a different kind of king than what you saw from David. And you know that this is the focus of all of Paul's sermon because uh, he, he starts off and he begins earlier in, in, in his sermon, he recounts the history of Israel. And he gets to David and then he just jumps and take this, takes this thousand year leap from the time of David right to Jesus. And what he's saying is Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised to David. So let's look at this passage. Let's start in verse 26. Let's look at this, uh, this sermon from the Apostle Paul. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Uh, so what you get in this passage is this kind of unfolding of, uh, of Jesus and, and his appearance and all the importance of what it is that he came to do. And you notice it starts off and it says, uh, we have good news of salvation to tell you. This is actually the fifth time in the book of Acts that the apostles said we were witnesses to his resurrection, meaning we were eye-hand witnesses. We got to see the resurrected Lord. We saw the one who had been on a cross, who died and was put in a tomb, and then we saw him walking around and so there's a, a sense of just the, the affirmation of Jesus' resurrection that takes place there. But it's important for us to understand. You notice he details the history of, uh, of really what Jesus went through. It says he, from his life that he was killed, he was executed, though he was innocent, and put upon a tree. The tree is the cross, that he was a sacrifice for us, and he paid the penalty of our sin upon a cross. But then he was resurrected, and the stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty. And friends, if you're gonna find any comfort or confidence at all in the Easter message, you need to understand two aspects of this. You need to understand the humiliation of Jesus, but you also need to understand the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus was humiliated on a cross. He was placed less than a man. Though innocent, he was declared guilty. Though, uh, though he, he was ruler of the universe and created uh, all, of, all of humanity, he was, uh, he, he was crucified and killed by the very people that he came, uh, that he created and that he made. Uh, those who came to save ultimately declared that they did not want him and they sent him away to his death. And so that's the humiliation Jesus, of Jesus. And you see his sacri sacrificial death for our sins, but you also then uh, get to see through the empty tomb his victorious resurrection from the dead. And so that's his exaltation. You have his humiliation that fo immediately is followed by his exaltation and the two are linked and you can't have Easter without Good Friday. And so you have to have both. You have to understand that the sacrificial lamb is also the lion 
man of Judah. And so the one who is humiliated is, is exalted. The, in, in this passage, you see multiple times there's, there's a, a phrase that's used. It says that Jesus was raised up. It's mentioned in verse 30, verse 33, 34, 37. And it speaks of Jesus raising up as his, his resurrection. But it's interesting because back in verse 22, when it talks about David, it said that David was raised up as king. And it's actually making a connection that it, that it wants you to see. There's a wordplay that's taken place here in Acts 13 that Paul's doing. He's saying, look, David was raised up a thousand years ago as king. Jesus was raised up as king, but he was raised up not through a coronation ceremony. He was raised up through his resurrection. That in his resurrection, he was a fulfillment of all that was promised in, 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 Acts, or in Psalm 2. And so Jesus was raised up, not just as David was, but even further. And he was a fulfillment of all the things that we have. So we see these human witnesses that said, look, we can testify that he was resurrected and raised from the dead. We also see then, as Paul continues to preach, a prophetic witness. Let's look at verse 32. Paul continues, and he says, And we bring to you good news that what, was pro that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for, a fact, as for the fact that he was raised him, had raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 36, says, For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid to his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised, did not, raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. Three different Old Testament passages are quoted here, and Paul is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all three. That, that all of that pointed forward to the time when Jesus would come and his death and his resurrection and his exaltation made him the king that was the fulfillment of the Davidic role and the prophecies that were given to David a thousand years prior. Now here's what's fascinating about this was David was given these promises, but David wasn't strong enough to fulfill it. So you notice he says that David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a nice way to say David died and he was laid in with his fathers and saw corruption. When he says he saw corruption, what he means is to dust, out of dust you were made, to dust you will return. David was, was buried and his body rotted and he stunk like the rest of us but not Jesus. It says Jesus, the one that God raised up, never, never uh, was corrupted. Because when he died, was in the, was in the tomb, he, he, he came out victorious over sin and over death, and he himself walked out of the grave, uncorrupted. In fact, he was incorruptible. And the reason is because he was greater. Jesus was a greater David. He was one from David's line who could actually fulfill the promise of Psalm 2. He could complete what David could not. He was stronger and wiser and better. Jesus is the king that all of the Old Testament prophecies have pointed to. And what Paul is saying is he's preaching the good news here, saying, look, salvation has come to us. The good news of the gospel has come to us. God's grace has come to us, and it's come to us through a king. And his name is Jesus, and he ascended to the throne the moment he walked out of the tomb as a resurrected, exalted ruler over all. Friends, this is good news. Everything in the past pointed to Jesus, but God has fulfilled the promises. 
And so those promises now roll out to us and what Jesus is, we will one day be. You notice what it says. It gives us two specific ways that, that Jesus blesses us. It says, let it be known, therefore, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. Friends, that means that all the wrongs that we've done have been accounted for. That, that, that every sin that, that we've tallied up has been wiped clean. That, that there's no shame, there's no guilt, but our sin's been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We've been washed white as snow. There's no more, uh, no more burden of sin, of guilt, of the penalty of sin that we carry in because Jesus, through his death on the cross, has brought to us and proclaimed us forgiveness of sins. So we no longer have anything to fear of the wrath of God. Do you notice also that there's a positive aspect? So that's, that's a removal of the negative aspect. But then he says there's also freedom from everything that your religious and moral code could never achieve for you. When it refers to the law of Moses saying, you were never good enough. Your, your religious and moral and ethical performance never measured up to God's standard. And so it was never going to be free to bring freedom to you. But now because of Christ, you're also free to live for God. So you're free to live in a new way. You're no longer under the power of the law or of sin. So let's return to Psalm 2. I want to go back and look at what it is that, um, that is offered to us in Psalm 2. Remember, this is, this is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises, all that David was promised, that there would be a ruler from the line of David that would come and he would experience peace forevermore and rule over all the nations of the earth. That finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. But you notice in Psalm 2, there's an invitation in verse 10. Therefore, he says, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, Pay homage, pay true homage to the son, to the, the anointed king, the one who has come. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Friends, he says, be wise and be warned because there is no other refuge than God's, God's exalted king. There is no other place of hiding. There is no other way of salvation except for that which is found in Jesus. And you were worth his dying. It's why, he, it's why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave willingly his only begotten son, so that whoever believed in him would have everlasting life. You were worth his dying. And now that means he's worth your kneeling. Because do you think Jesus will regret a single drop of the blood he spilled? Do you think he will, for, for a moment, flinch at the joy that was set before him of achieving your salvation. Now, this was God's, God's sovereign plan from the beginning of the universe to, to bring everything to a head in the person of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. That's why we call Good Friday when Jesus died good because it accomplished the forgiveness of our sins and it's why we proclaim Easter as the resurrection of our Lord because it was the day in which the humiliation flowed into his exaltation and he reigns victorious over all as king of the universe inaugurated although his kingdom is not yet full but he is going to return one day and he will set all things right and he will make all things new it will be a time where there is no more sin no more sorrow no more suffering no more sickness no more death and in that day we will rule and reign with him as co-heirs of the kingdom that, of every tongue and every tribe and every nation that lasts forevermore do you feel the good news of that? 
Do you believe it to be true? And if it is true, why then would you not throw yourself on the ground, kneeling before him, kissing the son, paying homage to this one that will rule for all time? Hey friends, in, in uncertain times, we need to know the compassion of Jesus, but I think we also need to know the strength of Jesus. He is truth and he is grace. He is the sacrificial lamb, but he is also the lion of Judah. He is savior and rescuer and deliverer, but he is also king and Lord and ruler. And those things together give us strength. Those things together give us hope. Those things together can drive us forward. Which is why 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Friends, the reason we can cast our anxieties on our compassionate Lord that cares for us is because he is also a mighty God who will rule and he will rule forevermore. There's a great scene at the end of Lord of the Rings where one of the little hobbits has made a, a foolish promise to a, an evil king and he's promised that he will serve him and he does so out of guilt and out of shame and in that moment he kneels and as this, uh, this king just ravages some food and feasts and throws things on the ground and you just, it's, it's, it's an awful scene of what it's like to kneel before an unworthy king. And friends, as I, as I thought about that scene this week and I thought about what it means to, to kneel with fear and trembling to pay homage to the, the son Jesus, I want you to know it's nothing like that. It will never be something you'll regret uh, because it's in him that you find refuge. It's in him that you find grace. It's not in casting off his, 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 his bonds and his rules and his, his morality, but it's in surrendering yourself to his goodness and to his care. And under that, you find joy, you find peace, you find rest. And so let's, let's be those this season, this Easter, that let's run to him. Let's throw our anxieties to him, know that he's compassionate, he cares for us. But let's also be confident that he is, that he is the mighty God, that he is the ruler, that he, is, he, he will reign over all things forevermore. And one day we will get to experience all the goodness of his reign as it was promised. Let me pray for us. Father, we do come. Father, we come humbly. Father, we kneel in our hearts and I almost just want to kneel before you now and just acknowledge that Christ is king. That Christ has died, but Christ has risen. And as the risen savior, he is also the exalted king. And one day he will come back and he will reign in, in full. And so, Father, we long for that day. We want that day. And in the midst of a world right now that feels very much uncertain and like chaos is reigning, we know that you, sovereign Lord, and you made the heavens, you made the earth, you made the sea and everything in it. And so we trust you. We trust that your plan is unfolding, that that uh, gives us confidence, that gives us hope. And you, as our captain, are supremely confident in where things are going. And so we, as, as your foot soldiers, as those who have been left here to do your work on this planet, Father, we, we are filled with hope. Lord, strengthen us with your goodness. Strengthen us with your grace. Strengthen us 
with the, the power of the resurrection that we might proclaim to our world the good news of the salvation that's found in Jesus. Father, we pray in his precious name. Amen.